and welcome to Happy Place. My name is Fern Cotton and today we invade the privacy of an incredible author, the writer of bestsellers, Untamed, Love Warrior and Carry On Warrior. It's the magnificent Glennon Doyle. Oh my God, like I only respect two types of women in the world right now, angry women and women who are in a coma. If you are not angry, please tell me you are not conscious. Like, and when you wake up, I'm going to send you some links and you're not going to believe the shit we've got going on down here, right? It's not all angry, I promise. In fact, there are some really reflective, raw moments too. There's a couple of triggering subjects for some people. So do check the show notes on this episode for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And now, here's the show. This is such a joy. I'm so grateful for your time. And um, I mean, what a moment for me to have you on the podcast. I'm over the moon. Oh, me too. I've been following you on Instagram. And now it's just, you're real. You're real I know. human. Say with you, I've been stalking you for a long time. So this is really special for me. And I'll start by just saying thank you for writing another incredible book untamed was well i mean it's just such a game changer for so many people and there are so so many things that that i got from that book and it was joyful it was a joyful book to read and what i loved is from the minute that that you kind of get started with the book you get exactly what it is because you have this genius story and i know that you've talked about this in numerous interviews but the cheetah story is the perfect setup for the subject matter and the feel of the book. So if you wouldn't mind sharing that right now, that would be a wonderful place to begin. I'd love to. Um, I was trying to find, I was hoping for some kind of metaphor, something that I could see in the real world that would illustrate this feeling that I was having on the inside of me my whole life, which I now know, which is the beautiful thing about writing, that millions of women were also feeling, right? And it was this thing, Fern, where I just, well, I'll describe it in my marriage. I was in a broken marriage to a good man, okay? And that is a tricky place for a woman to be because we're just supposed to be grateful for good enough, right? Um, but I just always had this feeling inside of me, this longing that maybe there could be a truer, deeper love for me, right? Um, but, you know, I just kept looking outside myself and saying, no, this is good enough, right? I have a good man as a husband. I have a life a lot of people who a lot of people are convinced to be grateful for, right? Women are always trained to be grateful for what we have and not dare ask for more, right? But it just 
wouldn't go away, this secret longing thing. Um, and so I was at the, uh, this safari park with my girls, my daughters, and um, they begged to go to this thing called the Cheetah Run. Okay, So we're lined up with all of these millions of other sweaty families waiting for this Cheetah Run to start. And the zookeeper walks out holding the leash of a Labrador Retriever. So my first thought is, all right, I'm not a scientist, but I know that's not a cheetah. And if she tries to tell my kids that that's a cheetah, I'm getting my $7 back. Okay. So we're waiting. And she says, hi, everybody. Do you think that this is Tabitha the cheetah? And all the kids say, no. And she says, you're right. This is Minnie the Labrador. Minnie is Tabitha's best friend. And since Tabitha was born in captivity, we raised Minnie alongside Tabitha to show her what to do, to tame her. So now everything that Minnie does, Tabitha wants to do. So first we'll watch Minnie run the cheetah race and Tabitha will watch and then we'll watch Tabitha. So the zookeeper lines Minnie up at the starting line and we watch this Labrador retriever chase this dirty pink bunny that's tied to a Jeep. Okay, that's the run. Then the zookeeper says, okay, now it's Tabitha's turn. And so we all watch. The zookeeper opens up the um, cage. Tabitha stalks out. She's just huge, terrifying. Her muscles are rippling under her gorgeous fur. And this majestic wild animal lines up at the starting line. The zookeeper blows a whistle. And this wild animal chases a dirty pink bunny down this well-worn path that they have made for her while a bunch of sweaty, bored strangers clap. And then at the very end, the zookeeper throws her into the dirt, this store-bought steak. The whole crowd is, yay, yay, Tabitha the cheetah. And I'm just sitting there, Fern, and my entire body was just like, that's it. If a wild animal like a cheetah can be tamed into forgetting who she is, to forgetting where she's from, to forgetting what she's meant for, to forgetting her power, then so can a woman. Mm. I mean, I, I, I felt it physically when I was reading that because I don't think there are many exceptions where women and some guys um, don't feel like they've had to absolutely conform to feel okay and I wonder if before you'd, you'd sort of seen this very visual perfect analogy that that starts your book that if you had mistaken that feeling for various other things through the years because I know for me I've I've usually mistaken that feeling for there's something wrong with me I, I'm not doing life right um, I'm getting it wrong I should be a certain way and I think we all mistake that one thing of being tamed to so many other things that is is, that's nonsense Mm -hmm. I think everybody would use a different word to describe what they thought about themselves with that deep longing right we would also I thought I was supposed to be grateful I was supposed to be happy this is supposed to be enough and that is partly us it's also partly because women are universally gaslit okay Mm. Because over, I mean, listen, Fern, the first story I ever learned about God and women was Eve. Yeah. So 
All I have to do is just pretend everything's perfect and never, ever dare to ask to know more, want more, have a, have a, have desire, have a appetite. Because if I do, if I do admit that I want more, the entire world will end. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Oh, wait, so is that where this started? Is it, is it from religion? Does it go back further? You know, in caveman times, men were physically more overbearing. You know, where did that where did that start? Where, where, and that indoctrination has obviously spiraled and been accentuated. But wh- where is that from? Well, I mean, I am fairly positive that where it comes from is from every direction when we're living in a patriarchal culture. Yeah. Right. I mean, any sort of uh, marginalized group or group who has been forced not to share power can be convinced to stay in their place if they're ashamed of wanting more. So that's why women are trained to be ashamed of our anger too. Like we, mm. we're talking about desire now. We're talking about longing. We're, we're trained to, to squash our longing and, and think we're crazy. We are also trained to be ashamed of our anger. I mean, every time I do any speaking engagement, it is inevitable that a woman will raise her hand and say, I just, what should I do about my anger? I'm just so angry. I'm just so <laughs> struggling with my anger. And I always say, oh my God, like I only respect two types of women in the world right now. Angry women and women who are in a coma, Mm. right? Like if you are not angry, please tell me you are not conscious. Like, and when you wake up, I'm going to send you some links and you're not going to believe the shit we've got going on down here. Right? Oh yeah. I just think that we have been trained to be ashamed of our longing, to be ashamed of our anger because angry women demand change. The anger one I'm so interested in because... It's certainly one of my go-to emotions. I think, you know, we all sort of swing on this pendulum between a couple of things that we'll really head towards. And mine are definitely sort of high-octane excitement and absolute rage. And sometimes I don't even know what it's about. I can't place it. I'm just in it. And I, and I had it this morning, you know, I was so irritable and I wanted to jump out of my own skin and I wanted to like punch the wall and I have to always, you know, go for a run or do something very physical to kind of beat it out of me, like get it out of me. I don't feel shame. I don't need to rid myself of it because of that, but I would just rather have a more content, you know, peaceful sort of existence during the day. But I do think there, you know, certainly there have been times where I thought, you know, why do I have this anger? I should be, you know, going through, especially as a mother, you know, sort of doing things calmly and reacting calmly and oh my God, it's not possible. And we should be able to feel anger. It bloody exists. Do you know what I mean? It's there. Mm-hmm. And what doesn't ever work and has never worked in the history of the world inside of any human being ever is that the shame or the should on top of the anger fixes it. Yeah. Never. It just never. makes it worse. But don't you think, Fern, that there's, you know, when I first got sober, really recovery for me was just, just this radical acceptance of every feeling that I had. Right? Yeah, I think I started drinking and overeating to numb it all. So like where you went for a run, I would have just eaten six boxes of cereal and then thrown it up yeah. or yeah. Dr- had seven drinks or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and, and when I got sober, this woman sat down next to me. I had just stood up in the circle at recovery meeting and I had said something like, okay, I've been sober for six days and I feel awful all the time and I'm afraid that my problem wasn't the drinking, that my problem was beneath the drinking, that my problem was me, that there's something wrong with me because it feels like 
there's some kind of secret to life that everyone else knows that I don't know. I yeah. just missed the lesson because it just feels like it's harder for me to be human than it looks like it is for everyone else. Mm. And I sat down and this woman came up to me afterwards and I will never forget her face. She said, Hey honey, um, I just want to tell you something that someone told me in early recovery. And that is that if there's any secret, it's just this, it's that it's not extra hard for you right now because you're doing it wrong. It's extra hard for you right now because you're finally doing life right. Yes. Because it's just really hard to be a human being that is not numbing and instead feeling all of their feelings. That's why so few yes. people do it. Well, this, but that is exactly, you know, Jesse, so my husband's in recovery and he, he's been sober about um, seven years. And, and we often talk about, and so I, I had a, a history in my 20s of bulimia and, and eating disorders, which was absolutely a numbing tactic. I, I did it for 10 years and it was, I wasn't coping with uh, the uh, career that, that I was already established at that point, but just the weirdness of it. And it was absolutely a coping mechanism. And similarly for my husband, you know, his drinking was absolutely numbing. And we all know that there's many ways, you know, shopping obsessively, buying shit online you don't need, gossiping, whatever it is, any compulsive behaviour. And when we're having tough times, like, you know, we're lucky people, but obviously lockdown's a bit bloody strange and it can be really intense. And we'll have moments where we have meltdowns and our kids are going crazy. And and we'll both go, oh my God, I can't cope. This is ridiculous. And it's like, wait, no, that's because we're not numbing it. Like we are welcoming all of the frustration and anger and confusion and whatever. We're just saying, yeah, hit me because we're not stopping it. We're not putting the dam up anymore. And there's a whole heap of acceptance around doing that. And then sitting with those feelings, like sitting with those feelings isn't fun. It's not meant to be fun, is it? It's that's life, you know, but I think the numbing thing, like, like you touched upon there, so often we don't even know we're doing it. We don't even know that we're, we've taken the painkiller to, to numb us. And it's something that you, you have to do a little bit of, self-inventory I think unless it's an obvious thing like we've shared so you can really look at how much you're trying to avoid life I guess yeah and it comes down to me it's like you know so many women get to a certain age and we're like we just feel lost we feel like we don't have a self we feel like we lost ourselves along the way we don't trust ourselves right we don't trust our longing we don't trust our anger we don't trust who we are. And I think that some of that comes from the numbing because what we're thinking about is pain, right? That moment that you have in your home, which I've had 68 times a day <laughs> for the last 40. I mean, this is all together too much family yeah. togetherness. Yeah, Good yeah, Lord. yeah. It's crazy. But that moment when that happens, it's a version of pain, right? Whatever it is, it's stress, it's anger, it's uh, whatever it is, anger, jealousy, um, all of those painful emotions. And what we do in those moments is we abandon ourselves. Okay. Whatever it is that we grab for in that moment of pain, food, booze, scrolling, the over shopping, the snark, the, the rage, the hate, the whatever it is that we jump to, that is an abandonment of self. And we yeah. would never do that to a friend. If a friend never. comes to us in a moment of pain and says, I'm hurt, I'm whatever, we wouldn't say, bye-bye, I'm out. We're horrible to ourselves. Right. 
And, and, and we think we're helping ourselves. That's the thing. We think we're helping by grabbing that thing, right? Mm. But what we're doing is abandoning ourselves. We're saying, I can't sit with myself. I can't sit with you in pain, self. And so what I think is cool is it's like, why then? Why not just keep numbing? Because it's so hard to be human. What is mm. the, the reward for staying? And I think the reward is self-trust. Mm. It's like over time you become a woman who knows that you will never abandon yourself. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, how, what was your... What what got you to that place? Like you know, you, so you're in re- you're in recovery and you have healed yourself and, and moved on from your period of bulimia. But what was that catalyst to go right? Enough's enough. I don't want to feel like this anymore. I want to be wild. I want to be a hundred percent me. I want to be authentic, genuine, have integrity, make decisions that are right for me. You know how what what got you there? Well. The way I think of it is, I mean, the, the, the jumping off point, the, the rock bottom, as they say for me, is that I found out that I was pregnant um, when I was 25 and I had been bulimic and alcoholic for 15 years. I became bulimic when I was 10 and I was very, very close to death. I was so sick and I had burned every bridge in my life. And I think that when I looked at that pregnancy test, I was sitting on a bathroom floor Um, I think that I understood at some cellular level that this could be my last chance Mm. to come to life. I think I just, you know, in the way you just know weird things, I just kind of knew. So that was the, um, you know, that's what got me to my first recovery meeting. That is the day that I went to my first recovery meeting. But, but what got me to the point of writing untamed and living that untamed journey over the next decade I think was a gradual, tiny, slow return to myself. It wasn't like this big thing that happened and overnight I was wild. Like it was just like I started not numbing, right? Which meant that I, and and I over time figured out that I had to stop looking outside of myself. I think this might've been the biggest shift. Um, It took me a long while to figure out that I was going to stay lost forever if I kept looking outside of myself for, for a map of life, right? That like, that's some one thing that little girls are trained to do. Boys are trained to look in moments of uncertainty, to look inside themselves for wisdom and an answer. And girls are trained to look in every moment of uncertainty, to look outside of themselves, right? For permission, mm. for consensus, yes. for there's approval. This, there's, there's the story you tell of, of when you walk into to your, um, a group, you've got a group of kids at your house and you tell us the story because this was such an eye-opener for me I was like of course I've I've been a kid and I've done that and I still do that now in some situations please tell us that because that was that was an eye-opener for me well a few weeks before the story that you're referring to which I will tell I had just found out about my husband's infidelity in my last marriage um 
And I, in the aftermath of that, had no freaking idea what to do. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know whether I should leave. I didn't know whether I should stay. I didn't know what was best for the kids. I didn't know what was best for me. And I didn't know how to know. And what I mean by that is the only way I knew how to um, know what to do is to ask everyone else on earth what I should do. Okay. Yeah. I do this all the time. That was my strategy. That was my strategy. I asked every single friend that I have, even the ones that I wouldn't trust with my own child, like all my friends. Okay. I read every article for like, if anyone had ever written an expert article on this, I read every single one from the feminists, from the marriage therapists, from the child psychologists, all the articles. I, um, oh, I took a bunch of Buzzfeed quizzes because that's what you do when you want to know what to do. With your one wild and precious life, okay? <laughs> you you take BuzzFeed quizzes, especially Brilliant. when you're a 42-year-old. So, so eventually, I find myself at 3 a.m. sitting on my bed, shoveling ice cream into my mouth and Googling, what should I do if my husband is a cheater but also a really good dad? Question mark, enter. So this is when I realize I have reached another rock bottom. Right? That, that yeah. I am now Googling to a bunch of robot of bots and trolls. Yeah. What I should do. Okay. Yeah. So I just sat there. Of course I still read all the links, right? But <laughs> <laughs> but I did understand that at some point I had completely lost touch with myself. Mm. Right? That I had no self to even ask. That I had no like a, it was like a cut phone connection, right? That if there was a self inside, we had no we were not communicating with each other. Yeah. And I kept thinking, where, at what point did I lose myself? Like, when did I lose this connection? So fast forward a few weeks later, my son is having a bunch of friends over. They're all sitting in the family room watching TV. And I peek my head in and I say, is anybody hungry? Okay. All the boys, every single boy in unison without taking their eyes off the television says immediately, yes. Okay, great. So see what happened there. They nailed it. Okay, I asked them a question. <laughs> they yeah. looked inside themselves, yeah. found an answer, said it. Like, yeah. just crushed that Q&A, okay? The girls, Fern, all did something completely different. So I'll never forget this because it was like in slow motion. The girls all, there's probably seven or eight of them in there. They say nothing, okay? They're completely silent at first. Then every single girl takes her eyes off the television and starts looking at each other's faces. Okay, they are looking at each other's faces to find out if they, in fact, are hungry inside their own bodies. Okay? Mm. Then they somehow, in some sort of wild mental telepathy, elect a spokesgirl. Okay? Silently. This braided, freckled 13-year-old girl turns her head, looks at me, smiles, and says... We're fine. Thank you. It so perfectly illustrates so many moments I've been in, in so many varying ways. And it's made me wonder, why are we not taught as women, as young girls, where has this come from? Why are we not taught to have that emotional independence to go, you know, for problem solving? I still do it now. You know, in my late 30s, I'm texting every friend I know to, like you say, to, to look for that exterior answer rather than tuning into my intuition, which is there. Like, I know it's there. I know the answer. I know 
will serve me best but I still don't always have that confidence and I I wonder if it is purely a confidence issue well, it's interesting you say confidence. The word confidence means it's the, the root of confidence is con and fid, which means fidelity to self. Mm. Right? So a person who is confident, which I like that word so much better than brave, but confidence means that in every situation you are <clears throat> remaining loyal to the, the wisdom inside. And yeah. the interesting thing is that women, people who live with confidence often look from the outside like when I first found out about the infidelity with Craig, I just knew, like, one thing that I knew is that it wasn't time for me to leave right away. And that was weird because parts of me wanted to. And all of my friends, I mean, I was a fierce feminist. Like, it looked like the most cowardly thing to a lot of people. It confused mm. a lot of people. But at the moment, I was living with confidence. And living with confidence, I had to allow everyone else to think I was a coward. Yes. Which is why I like the word confidence so much better than brave. But I think, um, I mean, I've been doing a lot of writing around this subject matter, so it's really fresh in my head. And I do think that it's not even a caveat, but the flip side or or the, um, I guess, just the equation that adds up is if you are willing to be 100% yourself authentic genuine speak your truth at all times you're going to piss people off there is absolutely no getting out of that one because you resign from being a people pleaser you refuse to conform you don't go along with everything else because it will be an easy life you root into that intuition and you have the confidence to follow it through so you are going to piss people off and and that's okay and I guess Part of being untamed is perhaps the acceptance of that. You're not going to please everyone. For sure. And I think it's a messy process at first because whenever you change the dance with people, you know, when you're used to constantly refusing to rock the boat outside of yourself, which women forever have decided, I don't want to pay that price. I don't want to pay the price of rocking the boat of my relationship, of my family, of my community, of my office. So I'll just stay quiet. What we need to realize is that there's a price to pay the other way too. Oh, yes. Right? We can choose outer conflict instead of inner conflict. Mm. Right? There's a price to pay by never rocking the boat, and that is that we slowly die inside. Yeah. Right? So that's too high. Too high of a price. But what I also think is it's messy in the middle. Right? But what I know about the women who I see who I believe are the most untamed, and what I have noticed about my life is that I think people hear untamed or they think about living true to yourself and they think it's just chaos, like angry chaos. What I have noticed about women who go through that process is they are some of the calmest. There's no, there's a messy middle where you find yourself constantly explaining yourself and justifying yourself because you think everyone has to agree with your decision to read, to live the way you want. And that's the middle phase. I see Mm. that a lot. And during that time, you're very upset and, and, and it, nothing feels peaceful. But then after a while, you, you realize that you can actually just do the next right thing for yourself without asking permission first and without explaining yourself after. Yeah. And then this peace comes. So I just think it's my family now, my friends. My, it's not like I'm out there raging at them all the time. Like when a woman is confident... 
confident ripples out like peace. Mm. Right? There's no more of that. Like, yeah. It was messy for a while. And suddenly there's this like, I think that people trust a woman who trusts herself. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I guess also if you're willing to get through that middle bit and you know there's going to be repercussions for you living an honest life, because you're so confident within that you're doing the right thing, you're not going to react to that anyway. So that whatever their reaction is sort of ends there. It's not like it's then going to become this huge argument or this ongoing turmoil because you're so confident that you don't need to engage in it. So I guess it is about having like losing guilt for a start that can do one and, and letting people react in whatever way they deem suitable and you just stepping back and letting that happen. And again, that that's, that's grounded in confidence. So, so how, how did you navigate that middle bit? How did you navigate the breakdown of your of your first marriage, obviously having kids involved as well. And that's for so many people, um, a situation that people are living and breathing every day. How how did you get through that? And how did you stay confident? Yeah, well, through practice, one thing at a time, I think it's people always find it interesting that for me, I mean, I announced that I was leaving my husband and marrying a woman right when I was launching my last book, which was about the redemption of my <laughs> first marriage, I was uh, a widely known writer who wrote about um, Christianity. I mean, the, the, the layers of terror that, <laughs> that rippled out in the public um, was I, ha- I had to be very ready for people to have yeah. very big feelings and very big reactions. Mm. And still, the public's reaction was not the hardest part for me. And I yeah. think... I hear this over and over again from people that you can, you know, I know activists who are so fierce and stand up at podiums and um, preach freedom and justice and are the most confident people you would ever see. And then they come home and they cry about their parents. Mm. I think for me, and I have heard from so many other people that it's almost a final frontier to move your life in a direction that is different in opposition of um, beyond what your parents taught you to break free from that belief that you have to live to please your parents. Right. Such a hard one, isn't it? Oh, I think it's the ultimate one. And for, for a lot of people. And um, for me, my mom and I are just very, very close. I mean, just codependent for sure. We talk seven times a day and, And so, and we love each other very well and deeply and, and beautifully. Um, but at that time when I told my mom that I was leaving her grandchildren's father and I was going to follow my love for a woman, she was scared to death. Um, and I could feel her anxiety and her fear in every single conversation and every single question, you know, what will the world say? What will the kids friends think? Like what? She was so scared about how the world was going to react, okay? And it's interesting because when, when parents do that, when they're so afraid of how the world will react, they end up bringing that fear to you, right? Absolutely. That you don't, we don't, you don't even have to experience from the world because they're bringing it to you. Oh, so, absolutely. So this is when I knew that I was losing, slipping. This is how I always know that I'm slipping, that I'm starting to abandon myself, is that in every single conversation with my mom, I found myself getting very defensive. Yeah. 
just explaining myself over and over again and, you know, just panic, just telling her why I could do what I needed to do and why I know what's best for me and what just, right? Um, that's how I always know that I'm slipping. And, um, I heard my mom on the phone say to me, Glennon, your dad and I are going to come next week. We're going to fly to you next week. We're going to just spend some time with the kids. And I just said, no, like PS, this is the first time I've ever said no to my mother in my damn life. And I was 42 years old. Okay. Um, I said, no, mommy, you can't come because, um, because you're so afraid and my children are not afraid. Yeah. I taught them that love is love and that it's best to just be yourself and let the world catch up. So they don't carry the fear that you're carrying, but if they see it in your eyes, they will help you carry it because they love and trust you. Well, exactly. So my job is to make sure that your fear doesn't become my children's problem. Mm. So you can't come. Your fear is your problem. You have to figure Mm. out your fear. And when you are ready to come to the island of our family, that's what we called it back then, the island of our family. When you're ready to come to the island of our family with nothing but fear and with, but with nothing but love and acceptance, we will lower the drawbridge for you, but not one second sooner. And so that was the moment I became a grown up. <laughs> that was the moment that, that a mother and a daughter became two women. Mm, oh my God. I mean, I love it. And I, you know what? I've, I've never ever um, thought that in the moments where I'm most defensive, which is quite a lot with certain people in my life, and there'll be certain people I have that dynamic with, that that's when I'm losing myself. I had never... I never equated that before. Like that to me is a nugget of gold that I will take from this conversation because often I just think, well, I have to prove my point. I have to wake them up. I have to, you know, get them on board with it. And actually that is again, another form of escaping yourself and what you know and that intuition. And I, Glenn, thank you for that because that was just very needed in my life right now. Um, <laughs> don't you think it's fear? It's fear, right? It's well, like- of course, of course. I just don't think I'd ever seen my reaction as that sort of departure. And I just find that so, so interesting. And I wonder if, so when you talk about untaming, does that always mean wild? Because... I'm experiencing a sort of strange untaming at the moment where during lockdown, I think for everyone, everything's so accentuated and heightened and we're all sitting with stuff because there's less distraction and demons are coming up from the past and all sorts. And I'm finding it a very interesting time. I'm actually really enjoying that bit of it that I am getting to sort of excavate everything and say, right, what's this pile of shit over here and what's this and really look at stuff. And I'm really enjoying that. But the untaming part that I've noticed since reading your book has been actually that I feel zero guilt or care that I'm being very quiet and I am the true introvert that I actually am, whereas many might assume that I'm an extrovert because of my job, but I'm 100% an introvert. I am drained by lots of people and by, you know, crowded rooms, etc., And I usually, outside of this weirdness, feel quite guilty or like, oh, God, but I should be doing this because everybody else is and maybe I'm not living my best life or whatever. And actually, my untaming has been a complete comfort in 
going to bed at nine and reading a book and loving every minute and not being on Zoom and house party and all these apps at all. Like I've barely called anyone. Um, And just being really peaceful in that and finding a contentedness. And I wonder if, if untamed always has to mean wild. Well, wild to me, that word is, is sort of like brave, right? Like it's um, wild means to me a return to self. It means a return to self in, in your deepest, truest, most beautiful, original form, right? It's who you were before the world told you who to be. Yeah. So I have two daughters. One of them, her wild self, her truest, most beautiful self, who she is, is quiet. Mm. Okay? She is cautious. She is quiet. She is introspective. She is most tamed when people try to throw her on stages, when people try to throw her in front of class. This is not who she is, right? She is fierce in her. She's brave. She's brilliant. And she shows that in, in different ways than somebody who might be more extroverted and more loud. So her while, I can see when people are shaming her. And it's just being tamed is just being shamed. It's just yeah, being yeah, shamed yeah. out of who you yeah. are, right? Yeah. I, my other daughter, Fern, she is like freaking, she's like six years from a felony for sure. She's just <laughs> like, she's... She's the more the more traditional form of wild, right? Yeah, yeah. And I can tell when she's being shamed out of her wild. Yeah. But I like that reframing of the word wild because I think I had perhaps misinterpreted it and and that's why some of the time I've put myself under the pressure of I should be you know, and I and I certainly did in my 20s, you know, in my social life but also in my work life. My work life was much more it was loud and and it had to be huge smiles and entertaining and engaging with people on that way. And I, you know, I had a period of depression that, that sort of knocked me for six and made me go, why am I doing this? I don't actually feel comfortable doing this. And very, very slowly over years and years, I've found myself in a new space that is a lot calmer and I'm talking about things I really care about. And I don't think I've necessarily noticed that 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 is the untaming bit. Because sometimes I think it, it just incrementally, you know, appears in your life. And then you, and then you have that moment where you realize it. Oh, I'm actually doing what I want to do. And I'm, you know, I'm nowhere near where you're at. I, I still have moments of fear or, and I get pressurized into things and I, and I then regret them. But, but I certainly think I'm, I'm headed in the right direction. And, and I wonder if you, if you have moments still that are doused in fear and make you question your intuition. No, I'm done. I'm just just nailing this in every area of my life. <laughs> nope, I'm just fixed. Um, Fern, oh my god! Like I am. I mean, I've struggled with anxiety and depression my whole life. You know, I actually spent a lot of time. So I became bulimic when I was ten, and then um, for a decade and a half, my entire life just became you know, doctor's offices and diagnoses and medication. And I was hospitalized my, in, in high school, actually. Um, and so my underlying belief about myself is, was I am crazy. Did you know that yeah. I still say, I said is? Because mm. I'm trying to get it to be a was, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and even, I mean, for like just, you know, very recently, like I 
I stopped believing that I was crazy or I started the journey to stop believing that I was crazy when I started raising my daughter, Tish, the one that I just told you that is introverted and deep feeling. And I think she's a lot like I was as a kid. Yeah. And what I realized watching her was, oh, I would never in a million years call her crazy or broken. Mm. Right. Um, so why am I calling myself that? I was just a kid who was super sensitive, who was a little bit different, who didn't have the skills that I needed back then. Mm. So, so my whole life now, I mean, when I think a lot of us have those like shame beliefs, you know, about ourselves that we somehow got taught when we were kids and we spend our whole lives trying to undo that root belief about ourselves. Abby, my wife, um, she was raised she was a gay kid and she was raised in a very strict Catholic culture. And so she is 40 and still trying to believe that she is loved by some, yeah. right? I mean, that her root shame belief is I am not lovable. I am not lovable. So, um, no. And all of these, these untamings as a woman, I mean, you know, I have found a way to replace the old beliefs I had about a woman, like a woman is supposed to stay small in ambition. She's supposed to stay quiet. She's supposed to stay small in, you know, in dreams and in emotion and in voice. I'm, I'm, I think I've undone those. And I still, every day of my life, am trying to undo this message that I got from my culture, from my family, from everywhere that is ground into my bones, which is that a woman's body is supposed to stay small. Yeah. That one... Fern, I mean, so help me God. Like I, it's so embarrassing because I'm supposed to be this like fierce feminist, like doing all of these things. And I still, I told Abby, my body stuff gets worse. Um, when things are out of control. Oh, tell me about Mm. it. I mean, because you know, I don't know about you, but a lot of my, uh, my anger this morning was this discomfort in my body. I didn't want to be in it. And that sounds very ungrateful and awful because it's a healthy body, but it, I wanted to just run out of my skin. And I think, again, you know, we know about the social indoctrination around the female form and what we're meant to look like and how we're meant to, you know, display our bodies or whatever. But it is so ingrained historically and, and for so many warped reasons. And that one, I think, is huge and you know I have a similar confusion to you because you know I'm a feminist and I I want to raise my daughter and have an influence on my stepdaughter that allows them to feel they can do whatever the hell they like but the body thing I I certainly still feel a bit teenagery in that one which Mm -hmm. is maybe doing teenagers a disservice but it's so tricky what what are your daily disciplines or your thought processes that allow you to not be absolutely dead-ended by that one? Um, <laughs> well, right now, I'm, I would tell you just completely, I know I'm supposed to be inspirational, so, so sorry about this. <laughs> sorry for all the things I'm it's about fine. to say. Um, I feel a little dead-ended about it right now, actually. Right. I was preparing for the book tour before the pandemic hit, so I was already feeling very out of control when I have to, I am actually best and in my most wild habitat when I'm at home thinking, uh. reading. I'm not a big go out into the world person, not even in my neighborhood. So like going Ooh. across the world on stages is a, is a leap for me. Yeah. I always get a little weird before tours. 
um, which really means that I just start obsessing about my body and food um, and exercise because I think I, when I feel out of control, I feel like, well, I can control that one thing, right? Yeah. Um, and then the pandemic hit, which I don't know. Then I got weirder. So I would say that when I get weird, I told Abby recently that I think that 50% of my thoughts throughout the day, no matter how much I freaking meditate or do all the things I'm supposed to do, are about my body and food and exercise. Yeah. Which pisses me off to no end. It makes me so angry because of the opportunity cost. Yes. Because I'm a smart, powerful woman. And when I think about the art I could make, the activism I could unleash, if I could recover that 50%, that is the cost. It's the cost of these messages being ingrained into women's bones from the time they're baby is countless pieces of art. countless world changing movements like it that part you know it just infuriates me and it just um anyway there's your inspirational minute i hope you got some helpful tips because you're being (laughs) honest and i think you know i found i you know i've i've talked about depression and anxiety a lot over the years but i've only recently started to talk about the body stuff because i still find it so tricky to talk about and embarrassed mm-hmm. a little bit and um and also I don't want that to be the message I tell people I want to say I love every bit of my body and I feel great in it every day and you should too but I certainly don't feel like I'm I'm there so I, I do think it's inspirational because you're just being honest and I and I think sometimes it's harder to hear people talk about things when they are 100%, you know, at peace with things that others find very tricky because you feel so distant from that. Like, I'll never be there. Um, and maybe we won't. You know, maybe there is an acceptance in that as well, that it is a, it's, a, it's an everyday uh, battle or at least thought process that, that feels quite negative. Um, I can literally hear my kids going so mental at my husband downstairs. <laughs> my God. I don't know what's it's I'm terrified to go down there um which actually leads me on to a page before we wrap up because I know you've got so much going on in your world right now but page 154 parent is no longer a noun it is a verb I mean that hit me like a ton of bricks because I think I spend so often going I'm doing parenting wrong. I don't know how I I feel guilty all the time and I don't know how to juggle everything going on in my life without my kids seemingly, you know, wanting to kill each other like they are downstairs. What is untamed parenting? How the hell do you do that? (laughs) You know, what I feel about all the things you just said, which I feel all the time too, is that there's so many shoulds there, right? Like they shouldn't be fighting. They shouldn't, I shouldn't be angry at them. I shouldn't. Yeah. I think we have this idea that parenting is about, um, I don't know, being this perfect angel being that is responding to everything that they do in a certain way and that is staying calm constantly. It's, it's almost like we think that being a perfect parent is being a robot. Yes. Like if I could just be a robot, I could be a better parent. But the problem is that we are not raising small robots. (laughs) We are raising beings who, if we are lucky, will grow into being fully human beings, just as equally fully as we are, who will be ragey, 
who will be um, bitter sometimes, who will be, yeah. who will want to jump out of their skin, who will experience fear and envy and all of the things. That, and if mm. they don't have somebody modeling what it looks like to be fully human, yeah. they will have a lot of shame about their humanity. Yeah. I mean, that makes me feel a lot better because, you know, it is so, I mean, I can hear my husband literally going mad at them. It's <laughs> so hard not to when the behavior, and especially during lockdown, we haven't got a break from it. And you just think actually, yes, it's okay to show that I'm human and that I may cry or whatever. And I think that that just takes the heat off of it hugely because well it it takes the impossible out of it like let's see how do i how do i parent them without ever showing them that i'm a human being yeah so i don't know i just have stopped trying to be a better parent i'm just like trying to be a fully human being i do apologize a lot well that's our family yeah that's the one thing we do actually (laughs) you have to because then they say sorry too and you're like oh they've learned that one they've learned that when they've been awful they come and say sorry i mean fern yesterday we had a breakdown a family breakdown I, okay, I had a breakdown. <laughs> I yeah. had a breakdown. Sent everybody upstairs to their rooms. I, I was totally nasty. So 40 minutes later, I'm walking up the stairs to go do my apology that they are very used to. And my son goes, I hadn't even made it to his room. I was still in the hallway. He goes, it's all right, mom. <laughs> he knew I was coming oh, for the apology. <laughs> I mean, that's so lovely. Oh, Glennon, I love you so much and I love everything you've just said because I will walk downstairs now into this war that I'm about to enter feeling like I can just deal with it and just whatever. Just, whatever. you know, whatever. Let it whatever. be what it is. Let it be what it be is. Be what it is. Look, Glennon, I can't thank you enough. Your book, oh. It's so beautiful. I adore it and I will read it again because there's so many things in there that were just so important. And um, and hopefully you'll get over to the UK one day. You might not want to, actually. You might I, just want to be at home. But, I do you know, maybe it. Maybe we'll meet properly and I hope we do. And thank you so much. Thank you for... Oh, what a delight. That was a bit of a dream come true for me. I have been such a fan of Glennon's and her writing. And that last book, Untamed, wow, it knocked me for six. You must read it. Just so brilliant. Thank you, Glennon. I really hope that we get to meet soon. I really do. Thanks to producer Matt Hill at Rethink Audio and to you lot for listening. As ever, I massively appreciate it. I've been loving reading all your comments and getting your feedback. It it just means the world to me. So thank you so much. Um, keep listening. I'll see you next week. Stay safe. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at, like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.